Fights On is produced with commercial consideration from Cubic Corporation. Since 1972, Cubic's ACMI has been a cornerstone of air combat range instrumentation. Cubic's LVC will expand that capability into the future across multi-domain operations. Truth and Training, Cubic LVC. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Welcome back to Fights On. Now that we've heard how postgraduate level aviators are made and learned about the opponents they train against, part one of today's episode, Putting It All Together, will look at how all of that is combined to prepare squadrons and air wings to deploy. We'll start with Red Flag, the seminal large-scale exercise known around the world and attended by not only American crews, but allied as well. Our guest today is F-15 Strike Eagle Wizzo, Mike Paco Benitez. Let's step to the jet, because the fight's on. We lost 70 aircraft to MiGs, but we lost 2,500 from surface-to-air fire. A Russian S-400, which is an SA-21, it can cover every square inch of that airspace. People are always watching, they're always listening, whether it's from the ground, if you're out in the desert, if you're at a fishing trawler over water uh, airspace, or even from space. The aggressors are entering the airspace at this time. First section of the combat spread was tight. Roger, Tario, I've got one man, he's in the left-hand turn. That's you're about to get guns. Ox-1 on the F-5, nose down. Turn in, fight's on. Okay, welcome back. We're here with Mike Paco Benitez, who is a former USAF F-15E Strike Eagle Weapon Systems Officer Wizzo. Welcome, Paco. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. Ah, glad to have you here. Before we get started on Red Flag, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, how you got to the Air Force, how you got to the Strike Eagle, and what your background is as far as deployments and Red Flags? Yeah, so I've... Uh, I've- Retired recently after 25 years. Uh, not all of that was the Air Force. So my path to the Air Force started actually in the Marine Corps. Uh, so I did eight years enlisted in the Marine Corps, a few deployments as a helo mech and a door gunner in uh, Afghanistan, then Iraq. Got my degree, jumped over to the Air Force through OTS. I uh, applied to become a navigator because I knew nothing about flying and it had a very high selection rate. There was a track for a weapon systems officer at the time. I didn't know what that meant, uh, but it sounded exciting. And so I threw my uh, hat in the ring. Ended up down in Pensacola and uh, tracked to the Strike Eagle and did a couple ops assignments, did a test assignment and uh, and a training unit as well. So four flying assignments, mostly in uh, North Carolina, did assignment over in the Lake and Heath in the UK. Did uh, some time in D.C., so I actually worked uh, in Congress as an active duty officer. Then I worked in the Pentagon. I've done some stints at DARPA, Silicon Valley, and a few other things. And then I, uh, I ended my career up in operational test, flying the F-15E and the F-15EX as a, a dual-qualified guy. So overall, five combat deployments, uh, about 250 combat missions, about a thousand, a little over a thousand combat hours in the Strike Eagle. Yeah, that's my uh, that's my story. All right, awesome. That's uh quite the extensive background. I think we're going to get into a lot of those experiences here talking about Red Flag, but that is what we're here to talk about. So can you give the listener a background on Red Flag? Sort of a quick overview of what it is first, then let's dive into where it came from and why. So Red Flag is uh, what the Air Force would say is the premier live fly air combat training event. 
Uh, so what it's meant to do is bring a whole bunch of aircraft together, simulate the fog and friction of a live fly uh, in a, I'd say, a cognitively challenged, dense environment with a lot of aircraft. There's a lot of stuff going on and being safe and effective uh, in that environment. And that's really meant to put you through some of the stressors that you would see in that fog and friction of combat. Specifically, it was originally designed for those uh, those first 10 combat missions. And uh, we can kind of get to the, where that number came from. But we really can't talk about Red Flag any more than that until we kind of jump back in history and kind of start with the why. Uh, so we, to do that, we have to actually go all the way back to Vietnam. There's some interesting things that I, I think the listeners would be very uh, curious to hear about. Some of it they probably have never heard. So we have to jump back to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. All right. So on the way uh, that we're jumping back to Vietnam, we got to stop in 1986. Uh, so back in the original Top Gun movie, on the first day of the class, Jester gives a speech, and what he says is he talks about the kill ratio. So during Korea, the Navy kill ratio was 12 to 1. Then it dropped down to 3 to 1 in Vietnam because we had become dependent on missiles. They lost some of the dogfighting skills. And he kind of sets the stage up of we teach ACM, air combat maneuvering, dogfighting. And then by the end of Vietnam, it was a great news story back up to 12 to 1. Those numbers and everything are kind of true depending on how you slice the data, but there's way more to the story about Vietnam and the lure of the fighter pilot and, and really the, the makings of Red Flag and how it all started. So let's start there. Okay. Okay. So if you go back to Vietnam and you kind of peel, uh, pull a thread on Jester's story, uh, if you look out throughout the whole war, the U.S., we shot down 195 MiGs in combat and we lost about 70 aircraft of all types, not just fighters. Uh, to MIG. So that works out to a, a 2.8 to 1 uh, kill ratio. Again, you can slice between the Navy and the Air Force. Overall, it's 2.8 to 1. But here's the thing, uh, and I know this is a, this is on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, and we love to talk about air and combat. We lost 70 aircraft to MIGs, but we lost 2,500 from surface-to-air fire. Right. It's it, it's not even close. So we lost uh, about 205 to, to surface-to-air missiles, and about 23 to 2400 by aircraft, uh, by um, sorry, ADA, air defense artillery. Uh, so if you added that up for perspective, we lost more aircraft in combat during the Vietnam War than the modern Air Force has fighters and bombers. Like an entire Air Force was shot yeah. down in Vietnam. So that's wow. So that's kind of the big picture. So if you look at it, any way you slice the data, we ended up dropping, we as the United States and allies during Vietnam, we dropped seven and a half million tons of weapons. That is double the amount that we dropped during World War II in Europe and Asia combined. It is it is insane when you look at the scale of operations uh, and the amount of aircraft. And in that process, um, in total, if you look at the amount of aircraft we, lo- we lost, uh, including non-combat, we lost 10,000 aircraft. So now you're counting helicopters, and we had about 58,000 uh, killed in action. So that's the scene setter. So no matter how you slice it, those numbers tell the story. It was an embarrassing failure of leadership. Now we can set aside policy and strategy, um, which is kind of what I want to dig into now, is how did we get there? And kind of that crucible of combat that those people had to live through. And that scar tissue is really what they brought back after the war, which helped rebuild and reshape the, the Air Force to be the modern uh, kind of air power that it is now. Okay. Well, let's dig into that. So what what were the findings? What did we determine we were getting right and getting wrong? I think a lot of people know the story of, as you said, Top Gun and, and where we came from Korea and that era with, you know, no more, no more dogfights, no more guns. And we found out that was wrong. But 
What were those lessons brought back specifically and how did they get applied by the Air Force? Okay. Yeah. Great question. So we'll, we'll jump into weapons first since you kind of brought it up. So the missiles and the radar systems to guide the missiles overall throughout all of the shots in the war had a, a less than a 0.1 PK. So one out of every 10 missiles actually worked as advertised. Mm-hmm. And that was, again, you could look at the, the after action reports and read through why, why did nothing work? Like, well, there was no test and evaluation process. We didn't have a weapon systems evaluation for live, live fire. We did not have the test and analytical rigor. When we contracted something and a company made it, we said, okay, well, it, you know, the glossy brochure is good enough and slap it on the aircraft. So we did not have some of the processes in place as technology started to accelerate. We also didn't have precision weapons. We didn't have electronic warfare. We had none of that. Uh, It wasn't a priority. And the reason it wasn't a priority, uh, speaking for the Air Force, is now you get to the aircraft. All of the Air Force fighters, the Century Series, they were designed to intercept Russian nuclear bombers at range, so your F-101s, 102s, 104s. And then the other ones were designed to deliver deliver low-altitude nukes, so your F-100s, 105s. They were not designed to fight another fighter. And they're definitely not designed to operate in a contested environment. And so, and the reason I say that is none of these aircraft had RWRs. Mm-hmm. They didn't have direction finding equipment, and they certainly didn't have harms that that did not uh, exist yet. But at the time, we knew the United States knew there were over 1,000 SA2s in use by the mid '60s. By the time Vietnam had kicked off, it, they were everywhere, and the Air Force was not preparing to fight for the realities of a conventional war that it saw in front of it. And there's a bunch of reasons for that that go into, there's a different cultural divide between the fighter generals and the bomber generals. And really it was a nuclear bombing and strategic bombing and nuclear mission was kind of the priority. And the fighter force was kind of left as an afterthought second tier mission. And Vietnam exposed all of those issues. So SEED, Suppression of Enemy Air Defenses, KS talked about it, I think, back in episode five. Mm -hmm. That literally did not exist as a mission. It, It came into being by bolting some things on some aircraft, and we tried it. So we tried it in, uh, in August of 65. It failed after 45 days. All of the F-100s that we had put into the fight, they all got shot down. Mm. We lost most of the people in the squadron. Yeah. And then the cherry on top, if you add all, so we talked about the weapons, the aircraft, the missions, the cherry on top was tactics and integration. The Air Force wasn't training to any relevant tactics, and it had almost no experience with integration. So they literally had to figure it out during their deployment in the crucible of combat. So they didn't know how to attack a surface-to-air missile site, let alone they had never even seen one or read about it. How do we determine how to navigate different calibers of, of AAA or, or ADA? You know, high, low, weave, uh, fast, slow. How do we weapon your target? How do we actually plan the rules of engagement and spins? And how do we actually put it all together to do something? So that's kind of the, the scar tissue that they, they had to live through. And there's a story. Um, I don't know if you ever heard of the uh, the Thanho Bridge or Dragon's Jaw Bridge. Have yeah, you ever absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, this is, a, this is literally the origin story of all modern large force employment. So the context, this is, uh, if if anyone's familiar with Operation Bolo, led by the legendary Robin Olds, Mm -hmm. this was about two and a half to three years before that. So this is the very, very beginning of actually hitting real targets in Vietnam. So here's the picture. There is a bridge, and this bridge is, uh, it's a large bridge. It's about 540 feet long, about 50 feet wide, and it sits about 50 feet above the water. It's a metallic, uh, it's a metal uh, truss construction bridge, 
and it has a concrete center pillar and then kind of concrete on each end. And it's used as a rail and a vehicle bridge. So it's a pretty, pretty uh, legit bridge. Yeah, it's solid. And it's in a very heavily defended area in North Vietnam, but it's a very important bridge. So the leaders-to-be said, we need to take this bridge out. And that led to, uh, how are we going to do this? And so there's another Air Force legend by the name of Robbie Reisner, and he built the first modern strike package, and it was codenamed 9-Alpha. And his job was to go take this bridge out. And so his strike package that he built comprised of 79 aircraft. Uh, The core of that was 46 F-105 strikers, and they had 300 bombs. So they went and did this mission, and it failed. And they lost three aircraft in the process. They tried it again the next day. It failed again. They lost several more aircraft. And, oh, by the way, this was four months before the first wild weasel mission ever flew. So they had they had F-100s. They had about 20 F-100s that were doing diving strafe attacks against AAA positions and SAM sites. That, I mean, that is, that is yeah. they're just trying to figure it out and make it happen. So... And I tell you that story because the the evolution of the strike package, uh, pretty, it, it, you can kind of map it along to that bridge. So overall, that bridge did not, that first mission was in 1965, and it didn't fall until 1972. Collectively, the Air Force and Navy flew 876 combat sorties against that bridge to try to knock it down before it finally fell. Uh, so that is really the, the scar tissue that, that these guys kind of lived through. So when the war ended, all of those guys, I call them the Iron Majors, they came back pretty fired up, pissed off that their leadership had completely failed them. And they kick-started this tactical renaissance in the fighter community and eventually kind of bubbled up to the leadership and then it kind of percolated over. And that became kind of the tactical integration and the mindset of, uh, of what we have today. And that's ultimately where kind of red flag the origins of that scar tissue come from. Okay, so recapping that just a little bit, it sounds like we were using almost World War II level tactics uh, just in the jet age, dropping dumb bombs in large numbers and expecting results on what we would call now a precision target. And predictably, it didn't work. Yeah, and they tried a lot of really creative ways. I mean, they were just trying to figure things out and there were some really innovative things they've tried. Unfortunately, none of them ever worked. And ironically, the the first day of the first mission with the first laser-guided bomb, the Paveway uh, laser-guided mm-hmm. bomb that exists today, that is what ended up dropping that, that bridge. And those are the bombs we still fly with today. Right. Well, because they're effective, right? And as yeah, shown there. So <laughs> when you were talking about a lack of integration, let's dig into that just a little bit. So you're talking about between different fighter communities or even squadrons wouldn't coordinate with one another. How disjointed was it? Yeah. So what had happened was the Air Force, again, the way that it was kind of prioritized, the Air Force fighter community in particular, it was doing missions. It was doing homeland defense and things like that. But it really had not set aside any kind of brain bites to think about, like, what happens if, if we all have to do this together? Uh, it was all kind of individual syllabus training events. So you'd see like two ships and four ships and things like that, but you wouldn't have anything that of, a, of a large scale to bring it all together to really flush out all of those issues that are going to happen when you start scaling to complexity. And anyone who's any uh, fighter pilot knows the, the difference between a good two ship fl- uh, flight lead and a good four ship flight lead, it's not twice as hard, it's 10 times as hard. Mm -hmm. So when you add more and more aircraft, it becomes more and more complex. And when you compile that with all of these different aircraft had all different types of attributes. So the range, speed, payload, 
these sensors, uh, what they could and couldn't do, what they were good at, what they were bad at, all of those attributes weren't really well known across the, the fighter force. So no one could really make really good decisions about how do we optimize the strengths and weaknesses of these, of these groups of fighters and put them together in a way that we have a synergistic effect. Like no one had really thought of it yeah. because no one was really thinking about it. I mean, it wasn't a priority. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think today's listener, if they're relatively young, they're used to seeing an Air Force that is primarily an F-15, F-16 Air Force. And obviously, you know, there's a couple variants of the F-15 and then the F-16. There's nuanced differences, but we're talking about a time where there were multitudes of aircraft operating and conducting these tactical missions just within the Air Force. And as you said, completely different flight characteristics, never practiced before. And to the point you had made earlier in that coming out of an era or in an era where the perceived threat was nuclear war, the Soviet Union, these guys are probably going to be launching in, I'm guessing, singles, pairs to head north up over Canada, over the poles to take out incoming Soviet bombers. Like you said, there was no enemy air defense. There was no jamming, at least in the early years. And they tried to bring all that into a package. And as you said, it just didn't work. So the Iron Majors, I hadn't heard that term before, but I love that term. They come out and what do they create? So they end up creating uh, a bunch of things. There's about a three or four year window where the Air Force had changed so many things, it is really hard to keep track. The big one, which we're going to talk about today, is Red Flag. So that was actually uh, the brainchild of a guy uh, named Moody Suter, and he was a major, and he was pretty fired up about his experiences, and he had this idea that if we could just bring everyone together in these rotational exercises we can show these people who had no experience and uh, the fog and friction and complexity of, of the things that we lived through for those first 10 missions until they can figure things out. But we can do it in a controlled, safe environment uh, for learning. And so the original name of what would happen if you bring all these different fighter packages and put them together, it was called Composite Force Training, CFT. Uh, eventually that became known as LFEs, which is Large Force Events or Large Force Employment or Large Force Exercise, depending on how you use the E. Uh, and, the, and the fun fact is that if there's a if there's any active duty Air Force guys that are listening to this, composite force training CFT, it's actually still listed on their monthly training activity reports that they have to sign, <laughs> and they probably have no idea why it's there or where it came from. But it yeah. literally came from like the '70s and Red Flag. <laughs> well, some things don't change, and I think that's <laughs> universal to all services. <laughs> that's right. But so Red Flag, I mean, you can't just put a whole bunch of aircraft in an airspace and say, hey, we're good. So there's, a, there's four other things that kind of made Red Flag possible. The first one was getting our arms around Intel. So the growth in Intel support through um, what's now known as NASIC, National Air and Space Intelligence Center, and then MISIC, which is the Missile uh, Space and Intelligence Center, to do FMA, FME, you call it. So foreign uh, material acquisitions and foreign material exploitation. So we can decide disseminate the strength, the weaknesses, and the attributes of the threats that we're going to face. Not just the that stuff that you've uh, that you've probably read about before from the aggressors, but this is the whole thing. And so how does their command and control work? How does the how do these SAMs actually radiate? How do the missiles guide from the SAMs? What kind of AAA is radar guided? Which one is optically guided? And so actually knowing and going to school on the threat is really where it starts. Uh, and we had, uh, Boat talked a little bit about the aggressors before, and that's kind of where they came from, because guess what? They were established in 1975 as well to support this. Okay. Uh, so Boat talked about that a couple episodes ago, I think. Mm -hmm. 
So then you put those two things, you got Intel support, we have aggressors, and now what we need to do is there was a huge investment to put surface-to-air threats on the Nellis range, which is where Red Flag, uh, the home of Red Flag, was going to be. And then the last thing was the, the invention slash development of air combat maneuvering and instrumentation, ACMI. This was an electronic way to keep track of all the aircraft, so when we came back, we could actually recreate what happened. Otherwise, we're just kind of guessing. And what we want is we want... Uh, fit, uh, high enough fidelity to actually get objective debrief points and debrief to make us all better. And not just the guy with the more experience wins because that's what he said he saw. So that was one of the things <laughs> right. that, that drove a the high quality training. If you didn't have all four of those components, it wasn't going to happen. Okay. I think that's a great encapsulation of what all came together and that is so key because we've all been there as little kids, right? I shot you. No, you. I shot you. <laughs> you, know, I, you can imagine doing that with with multiple or dozens of aircraft in high speed, and uh, I don't think they've made a fighter pilot or a you know military member who's not a Type A yet. So it all just sort of would come together and be a big mess if you didn't have that. So they established that and. What were their first attempts at running an exercise? Was it called Red Flag uh, at the first exercise? Yeah, it, how yep, did it, it was. How did it go? What was it? Yeah, yeah. it was. Uh, if I remember right, it was uh, November, I think, of 1975 was the first one. I want to say it wasn't very big. It probably had 35 to 40 aircraft. And it kind of set the uh, the model that was going to exist, it basically to replicate and grow from there. So it started as a, about a 10 or 14 day exercise. And that kind of evolved into the model that we have now, uh, which is a two week, two and a half week exercise. Uh, we hold it a few times a year. Uh, but I just want to just I just want to put a pin in it was this time period was so important. And there were so many other things going on. And we'll, and we'll probably talk about a few of them, where these other, a bunch of other large force flag level events all started camp coming from. So the Army actually watched the Air Force set up Red Flag, and we, the Air Force actually set out aggressors to the Army for some from trial work, and they ended up helping them stand up the National Training Center in 1980. So that's like the okay. Army's version of Red Flag. Mm -hmm. The Navy basically followed the same thing. They set up the, the Naval Strike Warfare Center in 1984 to complement uh, Top Gun, which was air-centric. Mm -hmm. And then the Weapons School, which is right uh, on the same base as where Red Flag was set up, they actually, um, there was a guy, uh, an Iron Major, his name was John Jumper. Uh, so what he did was he said, hey, what we're doing is not right. Let's start over from scratch. And so he came up with an idea called the building block approach in 1975. And what that did is that moved the entire weapons school away from this culture of kind of a haze and a gauntlet of these impossible, unrealistic syllabus rides. Mm. Uh, you know, if I walked uphill both ways to school, you're going to do it too. Right. Yeah. Uh, and instead, it was an objective way to go. Every part of every sortie has to have a, a desired learning objective. Why are we doing this? And then that has to feed into another sortie in the syllabus as it builds in complexity and realism. So those are the building blocks. And if it didn't fit, it was axed. And it's amazing. Like We still use that model today. And all of this happened in this time period. Yeah, that's a lot of change all at once. And we're going to actually talk to Casmo, Brian Harris, who's an Apache pilot about uh, the uh, National Training Center. And we're going to talk to Sonic here in a little bit uh, about Nautic, which is the outgrowth of uh, their warfare center, as you were saying. But that's a lot of change uh, all oh, yeah, at one time. That's yeah. right. There's there's yeah. plenty more, but we'll uh, we'll get to that in a in a, in a bit. Okay. Uh, yeah. So so the modern red flags. That's kind of all where it came from. Uh, the modern red flag. Like I said, it's a it's about a two week exercise. 
it was for a long, long time held four times a year. And the way it was broken down is um, the even numbers. So your your red flag two and four were coalition friendly. So we'd probably we bring in a bunch of coalition to kind of figure out how to work together. We do a lot of cross training about here's how we build packages. Here are the considerations. And so there's a lot of. Uh, uh, transfer of knowledge, where the red flag one and three, the odd numbers are more technologically and scenario sensitive. And so they're, they're generally either US only, or they're five eyes only. Uh, so that's kind of how in the, in the years past, this year is actually different. Uh, they moved to a three times a year model uh, for, for reasons that I'm just not privy to, but I know they only did three exercises this year. So we'll see what happens uh, next year. Okay, but it's been four since then in general. But it's been four. In general, it's four times It's four times a year, two weeks uh, each. Okay, and can you, real, really quick, sorry to interrupt, yeah. can you break down the Five Eyes countries for the listener? Ah, so Five Eyes is, oh, I'm going to get it wrong now, put me on the spot. <laughs> uh, let's see, US, the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. That's five. Yep, I got it. Yep, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so now if you vision uh, those scenarios I talked about in Vietnam, those strike packages, the modern red flag has upwards of 100 aircraft that are brought out to, uh, to Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas. Uh, you, it's sometimes it's, it's usually a bit less. Like 100 is kind of like the, the max that you'd see out there. And what you're creating, you're creating these scenarios that are, I think Chaos was saying that the largest he's seen out there is like an ADV-10 or ADV-20, something like that. I'd say 40V-10s, the 30V-20s are kind of where the sweet spot is uh, these days. And there, there's a few reasons for it, um, which we'll, we'll get to when we get to some of the limitations. Sure, um, yeah. What's great about Red Flag, though, is that the, that culture of how it, crea- it was created kind of persisted. And so it actually changes all the time. Um, but in general, it uses kind of a progressive uh, scenario management. So it starts with some kind of air-centric mission. So we have to gain and maintain air superiority. And then the, the, and a couple of days later in the following missions, it'll have some kind of global strike or a traditional uh, anti-axis aerial denial or a kick down the door scenario where we have to knock down a bunch of SAMs and then uh, create a path for, uh, you know, get the bombers through, something like that. And then what happens, and they'll, then they'll bring the SAMs back or reconstitute the SAMs and then they'll add, you know, a layer on that, a, a more capable air threat. So as the scenario over the two weeks progresses, it gets harder and harder and harder as people get more used to that fog and friction they're trying to, to recreate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you throw in uh, some, some curveballs like uh, night operations, GPS jamming, combat search and rescue. Hey, someone just went down. Now the whole scenario you know, uh, gets flipped on its head. And then maybe even uh, what we call JFE, joint forcible entry, which is you have a bunch of mobility aircraft you're trying to get into a, a contested mm-hmm. airspace. Uh, and you can see that there's a lot of learning going on. Yeah, because that's, that's a huge number of pieces to put together. And if the listener's never been involved in something like this, as, as you just heard Paco describe earlier, just trying to get that many fighter aircraft of disparate types back back in Vietnam together on a strike was hard enough. When you start throwing in different aircraft, but not just different aircraft, different cultures, right? Because the fighter culture is a culture, the transport culture is a culture, the Hilo CSAR culture is a culture. I'm not saying anyone's better or worse. They're just different cultures. Eventually, you, like you said, you bring in the Brits. You probably bring in some... Navy and Marine Corps assets from time to time. You bring in all these other people, you're talking slightly different languages, you do things slightly different ways, and you're not just executing a strike, you're midway through your strike that you've planned, and now that uh, friction and fog of war, the plane goes down, and now you got to get the CSAR asset in there. You got to you know, 
do the fourth century you were talking about, whether that's, it, it, I don't think you guys go as far as, do you bring actual ground forces, for example, like they're going to paradrop guys or they're going to land rangers on an airfield or is it just getting the transports in there? It's just the transports and it's mostly just because the uh, uprange is pretty uh, desperate. So sure. organizing to getting those people back is, uh, <laughs> is kind of a pain. Fair enough. So sorry, I went off on a tangent there. but <laughs> no, the, that's good. Yeah, but the... Uh, you know, the point being, this is a really complex thing to do. And so this is why we do it. So we're doing it four times a year, twice with any joint coalition ally, and then twice a year with the Five Eyes. Little bit of a tangent, if anyone's ever read Vulcan 607, I think I'm getting the title right, which is about the the Vulcan force doing the Black Buck bombings in the Falklands War. Early in the book, they talk about how they chose the crews to do that mission. They were looking at the guys who had just come from Red Flag, the Brits who had come from Red Flag and done really well. So I think that's a testament to even early on, because 82, if memory serves, so only about seven years into this program, a foreign country whose you know national pride as a seafaring uh, nation is on the line to recapture an island said, who, who are we going to send a bomb? Well, let's get the guys who were successful at the U.S. Air Force's Red Flag. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. So you're bringing all those together. Boy, you, I, there's so much here. I'm, I'm not even sure really what to unpack first. So, okay. Where do we Where do we go now? Do we want to talk about tactics? Is that a good place to to start going now? Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about assets first, and we can kind of jump into tactics. So we obviously there's fighters, there's different types of fighters, there's different types of fighter missions. That's pretty obvious. Uh, but this. Uh, red flag then grew to kind of encompass let's bring the bombers in as the uh there's a huge cultural divide between the the bomber air force and the fighting air force that's uh sack and tack is what the two organizations were called back then so this was a way to kind of bring them into the fold um c2 isr was a huge uh addition and that was at the end of vietnam that became one of the the best kept secrets the air force actually had that actually improved its kill ratio so if you go back to that uh, that opening quote from Top Gun, the Air Force had uh, had a trick up its sleeve called uh, Project T-Ball, if you ever heard of that. I haven't, actually. Okay. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. So C2ISR, they, at the end of Vietnam, the Iron Majors, they're like, this, we need to integrate this because we were getting we were getting screwed without them, without actually yeah. having like the right information that we need. We've uh, The Air Force has grown to integrate space and cyber, so we have space capabilities that we integrate and then we have some uh, some cyber capabilities and we actually have these uh, these cyber training ranges where we can have a there's a red cyber team that's fighting against the blue cyber operators so just like there's an aggressor like flying an F16 mm-hmm. or an F35 there's aggressor cyber people there's aggressor space people that are all trying to challenge poke and prod uh, and oh by the way they know all the blue tactics and so they're the best people to try to right. pressure test us so there is no element of surprise because they're all you know, us. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's the, the best opponent you're ever going to face because he's you uh, fighting against you. Yeah. Yeah. Failing miserably at a, as a, at a large force exercise is not a good thing. You had to come back <laughs> and you know, there's hundreds of people in the auditorium and you're like, yep, I'm the guy who screwed that one up. Yeah. Uh, so there's a little bit of pride, uh, yeah. but it really just makes everyone better because you're just pushing to not be the wedge, but you're really just trying to show what you can do and kind of, you want to, you want to bring it strong. 
especially when you're kind of out there with your squadron. You're, you're just, yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of bragging rights, but it really just makes everyone better. Um, you mentioned the, the army uh, with JFE. We actually do have some uh, some land capabilities we bring out there. Some of the some of the more interesting ones I've seen is we uh, we would take uh, either a Marine Corps or army. We would take HIMARS mm-hmm. or um, yeah, HIMARS we call them. Uh, yep. or, or, uh, was it multiple launch rocket systems? MLS? Yeah, MLRS and, yeah. and now HIMARS probably on the top of everyone's mind uh, with the news. But yeah, yeah. So we would take those and put them in the back of C-130s, and then we would escort these C-130s in, and they would they would land in the, on the uprange in the dirt, and they would push out these HIMARS. The, the guys would set it up with the engines still running the C-130 and basically launch their HIMARS at these, uh, like, you know, SAM targets and things, and they would put the HIMARS back in the C-130, and it would take back off. Right. Like the, it, all in the middle of this, like, big air war that's going on. Yeah, and so, so it's <laughs> every tool in, in the kit for seed, right? Because there's what better, especially if you've got some sort of, of barrage air defense, that's a lot of your air assets to start laying down ordnance on that. So that's a, a creative solution to that. I, I can't imagine the uh, stress and the professionalism that goes into that, but in any case. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, yeah. You, since you mentioned that the the opening, one of the opening shots of Desert Storm was an army unit firing an ATACMS to take out a uh, air defense system. So it was actually a seed shot from an army missile wow. unit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Project T-Ball, and this actually will get back into uh, of the bigger picture of all these things in play. So, so Project T-Ball was an initiative in Vietnam towards the end, about mid seventy two. And what it did was it took a, um, they tapped into some North Vietnamese communications and radar signals, and they were able to recreate their ground picture. With They combined that with some of our ground radars, some of our, uh, our radars from uh, out in the, the fleet at sea off the coast, mm-hmm. and then some aerial radar and some SIGINT platforms. And we had some some really funny names to these SIGINT platforms. And they were collecting ELINT, SIGINT, and everything. And they were actually all feeding this NSA, no kidding, this NSA supercomputer. It's called Iron Horse. Mm-hmm. And what it did is it built this common operating picture that literally did not exist at the time. Right. And what they did is they fed that, uh, and they said the pilots, I got all the pilots' call signs and their discrete frequencies. And they said, hey, if we call you on your frequency, like just pay attention to us. Hmm. And uh, they had a they have an orbiting KC-135 as a radio relay. And what they would do is they would roll over to their frequencies and go, hey, if you go left 30 degrees for 27 miles, there is a MIG there. And, or you are going to get jumped in 10 minutes because they're launching the fleet. And so what that gave the U.S. fighter pilots the advantage of was situational awareness. So they had literally for years have been flying reactively in these missions, but they didn't have the command and control or the, the, the air picture that we would know today with like an AWACS. They didn't have that. So there was this system was built, and towards the end of the war, it ended up uh, basically flipping the kill ratios in the last like three years, and uh, we kept that a secret for quite some time. But now you can go read about it. It's called Project T Ball. Project T Ball. We kept it a secret as you would at the time. Yeah, but you know it's been that way since the dawn of aviation, or at least aerial combat. Right, lose sight, lose the fight. It's the guy who gets snuck up on that gets shot down, and if we can build that common operating picture, well, now you're not going to be snuck up on. And it gives you the ability to sneak up on the opponent. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So if we take everything that was kind of going on there and uh, at a red flag, and then we add in this massive recapitalization of the aircraft fleet inventory. So the A-10, the F-15, the F-16, the F-117, all of those kind of came out in that time frame. This The uh, KC-10, there's about three or four other aircraft that I can't think of right now. Uh, they all were kind of developed in this like very narrow, like five to seven year period. So the right. Air Force was literally reinventing itself. And then you take things like Combat Archer and Combat Hammer, which is the air and ground weapon systems valuation. So Archer is shooting air-to-air missiles at drones to make sure they all work. And you get people experienced shooting live missiles for the first time. Combat Hammer is air-to-ground, so it's dropping and evaluating precision-guiding weapons. And so those hap- those started up in the late 70s and early 80s. And so you can see the Air Force is, is preparing itself for this major conventional war. Uh, by like the mid-80s, it had peaked. The Air Force was huge. It had the newest aircraft. It had the best trained pilots. It had the best equipment. And that kind of sets the stage for what happened in Desert Storm. Right. Okay. And that's just to remind listeners who are younger or who you know may not remember the speed the span of change in that decade you're talking about you know we're used to a military now where we've seen F16s and F15s for 50 years right the the air force has been relatively static in that regard and i don't mean they to say they haven't been upgrading the systems and the capabilities but you know that those the A10 that's sort of what we're used to seeing the navy it, it was the F14 until about uh, just under 20 years ago but F18s pretty standard we're looking at a 10 year block where the air force was almost unidentifiable to someone who had fought in Vietnam by 82 it's almost a completely new entity right yeah that's right and the the amazing thing about all of this almost every single initiative was a bottom up push. It was not a top-down leadership driven. It was a bottom-up. So majors and lieutenant mm-hmm. colonels, guys like John Boyd, he's writing the requirements for the F-16 out of spite. Right? <laughs> so like all of these things were happening. You know, the F-15, uh, you know, was developed out of a, of a complete failure to realize that Russia was, had made the MiG-25. So, or, or, or of what it was. Yeah. It was, or, yeah, it was, they didn't even know what it was at the time. Yeah, it was the super fighter. That's right. And, like, oh, yeah. yeah. So they caught, yeah. So a lot of that stuff was, uh, was, you know, that's how it all started. So that kind of leads us to Desert Storm. And I would say that is from the modern Air Force, that is like the high watermark that we talk about. So it was the technical and tactical peak of the U.S. Air Force. It was the biggest, the baddest, and the best Air Force uh, that we've had in the modern era. So the past 40 years, when you look at how many aircraft, we had 134 fighter squadrons, which is insane. We have, I think, maybe 50 today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what happened was then we fought a war uh, against uh, Iraq, really against Saddam Hussein from his invasion in Kuwait. And at the time, people don't realize this because they think of Iraq as like counterinsurgency. But at the time, you know, Iraq was was no, uh, I mean, it was pretty strong. It, it had one of the most modern, probably the second or third most modern air defenses in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously behind Russia, because we were kind of, the Cold War was kind of ending right there. Right. Uh, but they were, I mean, they had a, a massive aircraft inventory and they were really wanting to fight. And so yeah. we had a war and yeah. the results speak for themselves. And it's almost comical and you don't really appreciate it. Like when you look at the projection, the, you know, there is some an analysis of projections of, of losses and hundreds of aircraft will be lost. Like thousands of people are going to die. And what we did is we fought a 
we've basically fought a 30 day air war and then a hundred hour ground war. And that was it. Yeah. And <laughs> there's so much to unpack on that. I mean, just to your point, I was, I was a midshipman when that happened. And I just remember that, you know, they're talking about ordering 10,000 additional body bags yeah. for DOD, right? Because to your point, I, I don't remember exactly the number, but Iraq was considered in the top five quantity-wise militaries in the world. I mean, obviously it was behind the US, the Soviet Union, and probably China, but it was big. It was not considered a slouch. And to your point, uh, the Air Force at its high watermark, as you said, pretty much just crushed it. I know that's an oversimplification. We took losses and there's a whole nother discussion. Maybe we'll have another project in the future about what that sort of done to the American perception of what war is because we made our first post-Cold War conflict look almost like laser tag. But, yeah, they uh, made it. It, it yeah. was definitely made to look easy, uh, but there is right. a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that went into doing something like that. Absolutely. So overall, the the entire coalition, so not the Air Force, the entire coalition only lost uh, like 44 aircraft to combat. Mm-hmm. That's it. And only one of them was an air-to-air loss. The rest right. of them were, were uh, AAA or SAMs. Right. Sort of going back to your point from the Vietnam lessons, you know, we're not that we could slouch air-to-air, but everyone likes to talk air-to-air. Well, it's a lot easier for a country to become proficient in surface-to-air capability than it is air-to-air. Yeah, exactly. Have you ever seen a, uh, there's a YouTube video of an F-16 HUD that's doing daytime threat reactions. And as he's doing them, he's got these missiles, these smoke streaks going through his heads-up mm-hmm. display. Have you ever seen that video on YouTube? I, I have. It's, um, was that the Q-Strike? It is. It was, pa- yeah. it was package mm-hmm. Q. So this was actually yep. uh, one of the lessons we took that, you know, too much of a good thing can actually be too much. <laughs> right. So so for the listeners who don't know, package Q was the largest strike package of Desert Storm. And it was decided that it was day three of the war that we're going to amass this huge strike package for a daytime, the first daytime strike. Uh, and we're going to go to downtown Baghdad. And this package had 90 fighters plus tankers. So it had 72 F-16s was basically the strike package. And it had a couple of F-15s, some F-4s and EF-111s as providing a cover. And so what had happened through a multitude of uh, glitches that individually would be a small thing, whether uh, they had some tanker timeout, uh, tanker problems, had some timing issues because they're all launching from different airfields. It's multiple wings of aircraft, multiple airfields in different countries. They're all kind of coming together. Uh, They had some package fallout and that kind of snowballed into someone that no one had even anticipated. Even the mission planning, like, man, this is really, really complex. Like it'll be easy once we get airborne. We've done this before. (laughs) We've been a red flag. So what ended up happening was the the, the F-15s ended up, uh, after the first F-16 kind of entered the target area, he, they basically left. The F-4s left because they had, uh, they'd shot their harms and, uh, as uh, preemptive pet shots, call them, preemptive targeting. Mm-hmm. And they had like, hey, bingoed out, so they left. And the EF-111s, who are the electronic warfare kind of uh, top cover, they had left. And so what ended up happening was you had this huge package of F-16s that basically during the day flew directly into this flurry of AAA and 25 overlapping SAM sites, and they had no support. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. unfortunately, uh, only two aircraft got shot down, 
And what you see is one aircraft that did not get shot down was the YouTube video that you see. So he ends up doing threat reactions and dodging seven different SAMs mm-hmm. and making it home. And then he realized when he landed that his uh, his chaff and flare that he'd been putting out the whole time actually didn't work. And so he oh had all gosh. of his chaff and flare. <laughs> yeah, it's a crazy story. I'll look it up, but I, at the at the outro, what I record, I'll I'll figure out the exact uh, YouTube video. I think it's it, the call sign was stroke and I think it might be stroke six, but don't quote me on that right now. Yeah. People. Stroke three, stroke six. It's one of those. Yeah. yeah it, but it is an amazing video to watch. Um, you know, if you don't, if you're not used to seeing it, it can look a little weird. Like you're not looking at anything except the HUD yeah. symbology. But as you listen to him, among other things, it's okay. So everyone thinks the desert star mode, the cakewalk. I mean, you can hear the voices of his wingman. You can hear his voice. It doesn't matter if you're in a third world conflict. If that missile is coming for you, it is intensely personal and it is 100% lethal. And you just listen to the stress and then you listen to the physiology, which is something we've touched on through this series, is the physiology of air combat. As he's continuing to pull G's and have to out uh, maneuver missile after missile, you can just hear it. You can hear the physical depletion of that pilot. Yeah, what I love about that tape is we, you know, we we talk about because it's hard to jump in the cockpit and go along with for the ride, mm-hmm. you know. So it sounds like air combat is this very sterile, surgical, calm, cool, collected thing. And I'll tell you, uh, I've been in some interesting situations, and it is anything but that. Uh, so yeah, I appreciate what that man is going through in that yeah. video, <laughs> definitely. So. So taking that and looking, that's, you know, that's the pinnacle of the Air Force, as you said, but definitely in terms of size and probably readiness, that's not a stab at anyone who's active now, but we had basically planned to fight a war for 50 years and not done that. Right now, we've been fighting a war for, or one of various wars for 20 years, and you can make arguments about funding and back and forth, but I think it's fair to say that by the end of the 80s, we had had a huge surge in money, the airframes were new, all that you're talking about. Yet still, and with Red Flag and with those guys being professionals who had been Red Flag, these things still happen. So what are the, you know, what leads to something like that? And what are we looking at in the future? Like what what did what did we learn from that? Yeah, so like I said, the fog and friction of war is a it's a thing, and you can't plan for everything. And there's definitely your stresses in combat. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of other things that kind of lay into that. And so if you look mm-hmm. at after Desert Storm, again, we had, that was kind of the peak of the Air Force. There was a huge drawdown in 92, 93, uh, which was called the Peace Dividend. The Cold War ended. There's never going to be a war again. And so we started cutting the forces and we, we started making some trades. Um, curtailed a lot of programs. And you know, fast forward, technology continues to evolve and mature around the world. And it turns out you know, the Air Force doesn't have... Uh, or the U.S. doesn't always have the best technological solution for everything, as maybe we thought uh, in the past. And so by by 2018, that's an interesting year for a few reasons. The national defense strategy that kind of pivoted the Air Force or the military out of the Middle East and towards the Pacific was mm-hmm. kind of uh, realized, and it's reinforced with the latest national defense strategy. But red flag, remember I told you back in the beginning, about every decade it kind of it kind of resets itself and it kind of what what are we trying to solve here how do we how do we um, help the warfighter 
And so in 2018 was the most recent evolution of Red Flag. And so the issue that they were trying to solve is, what are we supposed to do now? Do we either train for the high-end fight or do we try to provide those first 10 uh, combat missions, that experience? Um, now, in the old days, let's say back in the 80s and the 90s, like those two things used to be one and the same, but the world had been changing and those paths started to diverge. And so they were kind of struggling to bounce both and trying to sell it as like, well, this is, this is as real as it gets. Like, yeah, but it's not real. <laughs> It's yeah. not real for a whole bunch of reasons. Like we can literally can't replicate this anymore on this range and with these resources. And so what they, uh, what they did is they galvanized around three things. And this is what they do today. So number one, their objective is to build confidence under fire. And so their target is the youngest wingman in that formation. So he can live through and fly in that fog and friction and replicate that. So he knows how that feels and how it's going to get his heartbeat going. It's going to get his blood going. He's going to start missing radio calls. And like how and how he can recognize and work through that uh, physiologically, so he can still be that high-performing individual that he is in his day-to-day -day training. Mm -hmm. The second thing they do is they call it integrated leadership, which is really mission commander training. So red flag, one of the things that it's, it's been doing the past probably 25 years is it builds mission commanders. And those are the people who actually lead these massive strike packages. So you have strike package commanders, uh, which are they're kind of the, the smaller pieces. There's different leads, like there's a seed package lead, there's a, uh, an OCA lead. And then the mission commander is the overall guy who's in charge of everything. He's accountable for the mission back to the Air Operations Center, back to uh, the, the CFAC, you know, the three-star. Mm -hmm. He is the guy that's in charge. And then the last one, it kind of ties the whole point of red flag back to the origins, uh, to the modern uh, substantiation of it, which is to develop a warfighter culture for everyone who, who goes there. So it doesn't matter, you know, if you, uh, if you, you know, fly a, fly a jet or you, you know, ride a keyboard at a desk, uh, if you have a, a part of a mission to integrate into that, those outcomes, then you are part of that culture. And so they do a really good job of trying to bring everyone together and build that heterogeneous team of all these different types of participants to have that warfighter culture. Yeah, that's a really important part there at the end for the listener to understand. It's not just the guys in the cockpit. It's everything. And I'll just, as a personal example, uh, in Iraq, our intel sergeant, never rolled on a convoy, but she had that mentality and she had that spirit. It gave you a lot of confidence going out the door because she got it, right? It, she wasn't doing an administrative task when she was doing our route reconnaissance analysis and, and helping with the route planning. And that's crucial because you sometimes you do have people who are, I don't want to say phoning it in, but if you don't have that warrior mindset, you're not fully supporting the warrior. Yeah, that's a great point. It sounds like there's been some recognition that we're getting into an era where the technology is so advanced, it's just hard to replicate in the real world. So Red Flag has, as you said, pivoted a little bit and chosen to train in the areas that it can bring very high fidelity to. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. Um, before we pivot into that, I just want to kind of capture, yeah. uh, just encapsulate, like there are other things out there besides red flag. And mm -hmm. I just want to spend a couple of minutes just acknowledging them for, for yeah, the, absolutely. the listeners out there. So uh, Chaos talked about back in episode five about weapon school. And so Wizent is kind of the, the culmination phase at weapon school, the weapons integration phase. And, and that's, if you think of that, that's like a push it up red flag. It's red flag, but like on steroids, mm -hmm. the scenarios are more complex. That has way harder problem sets. 
Uh, but the good news is everyone flying in the, on the blue side is either a weapons school instructor or someone who's about to graduate weapons school in a week and earn their patch. Okay. Uh, so it is the tactical peak of almost everyone that's participating. And it's, it is amazing to see what some of the, 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 just the, the human, the, potential of human performance is at their peak when you put everyone together mm -hmm. it like there is no problem that is not solvable and you know you can give me a, a, a rock and a stick and i'll figure it out yeah and so uh you know chaos talked about that's his uh, adv you know 10 adv 20 kind of scenarios mm -hmm. uh i've done uh 30 v 40 uh air to air uh, and then they regen so it ends up being like 30 v 80 uh, and a few other really interesting uh, scenarios out there so then there's also Red Flag Alaska, which sounds just like Red Flag, but in Alaska. Guess what it is? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, it's a little different. Uh, the range is much bigger. It's got uh, less flying restrictions because there's not a, uh, there's not a lot of uh, congestion or airliners to worry about. Uh, it's more mountainous, and it happens about four times a year as well. Uh, it actually came, guess what? It originated in 1976 um, <laughs> out of uh, a thing called Exercise Cope Thunder. Mm -hmm. It actually moved from the Philippines to Alaska uh, in the early 90s based on, uh, I think it was a volcano or something that erupted yep. and kind of destroyed everything. Yeah, yeah there you go. Uh, so up in Alaska, there's another thing up there called Northern Edge. So this one only happens about uh, two weeks every other year. It started best, and guess what year it started? Uh, 1975. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you see, there's a there's a, there's there's a, a theme pattern here. here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was originally called Jack Frost, and it was renamed the Northern Edge in '93. And what's cool about this one, Northern Edge, it's unique in three ways. Uh, part of the exercise area is over the ocean, and so it actually includes a lot of naval forces. Mm -hmm. So we've had carrier strike groups and Aegis destroyers actually off the coast participating in this huge war. It's pretty cool. Uh, the second one is that uh, there's a ton of advanced tech that gets integrated into the event. Some of it's military tech, some of it's defense industry developed tech that they bring out there and, and, and have flying test beds. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes the participants know about certain pieces of it. Sometimes they have no idea it's even out there. It's all need to know stuff. But that is a really good proving ground uh, to put some stuff in the in literally the most realistic live flying that we, we can you can replicate. Uh, and it's even more than Red Flag Nellis. It is uh, the amount of aircraft and just contested signal-wise uh, and signature stuff that you can do. You can't do it anywhere else in the world. It is some of the hardest flying. I've never actually flown there. I've done some mission planning to help guys fly there. Uh, everyone I know that's flown there, that's, they've been flying out of Nellis for a decade. They're like, that is 10 times harder. <laughs> yeah, this, this is the real deal. <laughs> this okay. is the real deal, yeah. So that's Northern Edge. It only happens every other year. Um, and there's a, there's a few reasons for that. Yeah. Uh, then you have what's called checkered flag. Uh, keeping the, the flag name going. Uh, this is a uh, an event in Florida. It actually started out of sequestration, believe it or not. They're finding, uh, they got a whole bunch of uh, budget cuts. They're finding a way, uh, while they had a bunch of uh, resources that were in town at Tyndall to shoot missiles and drop some bombs for combat hammer and combat archer, they said, hey, what if we just had a big air-to-air -air focused event, we could do it here. And so that's where Checkered Flag came from. Okay. So what's cool about Checkered Flag that's not like Red Flag, number one, it's all over the water and it's D it's a DCA focused uh, scenario. It's a defensive counter air. So you have red air and blue air. There's no SAMs to worry about. There's none of that. It's just air-to-air. Uh, so it actually scratches an itch that red flag uh, typically doesn't. So you have a higher number of red forces, uh, red flag, when you, when you have a lot of complexity. There's usually more blue than red, and then red kind of replicates mm -hmm. out in a checkered flag. There's a lot of red air. 
uh, and then they get a lot of regens and the, the fight time is usually longer. So we bring out tankers and, you know, I've been out there for, uh, yeah, an hour, hour and a half, uh, two hour vols. Mm-hmm. And you'll, you'll go out there and you'll fight a, you know, a 40 V 40, a 40 V 50. And, you know, and they're regening the whole time where you're worried about missile management fuel. And every time they die, right. they just hit the button and now they're fully loaded again. And so you end up with like a 40 V 100 or something at the end based on how many red air you end up killing. Yeah. So that's a, uh, that's definitely a stress test for the air-to-air centric uh, stuff. Missions. Yes. Yeah, so real quick, just for the listeners, so they understand what a regen is. While the blue force, the good guys, are essentially one one mission from launch to land with whatever missiles and gas they took off with. Maybe not gas. Maybe you go tank. But uh, the red force regening essentially because there's no real missiles being shot. They get to a point. They regen. They've got a full no full load of missiles. If they've been constructively shot down, they're back in the fight. So that's what's bringing this, you know, a real a 40 v 50 turns into a 40 v 150 because the bad guys get regen three times. Sorry, I didn't want to yeah. no, that's uh, perfect derail you, but just perfect yeah. explanation. Yeah. And then uh, back to the point we were talking earlier about red flag, how there's this coalition uh, red flags that we bring in people. Mm-hmm. So um, <laughs> imitation is the best form of flattery. So there's some foreign uh, things that look like red flag. Um, TLP and ATLC are the big ones. TLP is a tactical tactical leadership program mm-hmm. that was started in Europe in 1978. Sounds familiar. <laughs> uh, again, to, so we can get European forces integrating and training together and they're building mission commanders uh, in NATO. And that's really what the focus of that one is. ATLC is the Advanced Tactical Leadership Course. That was established in the Middle East in 2004, and it's modeled after the exact same um, uh, processes and stuff that we're very familiar with as Westerners. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then Blue Flag is actually one of the more recent ones. That was established in Israel in 2013. I actually went to the first one of those. That uh, That was an interesting experience. And there's a bunch of ones in the Pacific I can't really think of right now. But yeah, so that model from Red Flag has been replicated again and again and again because it works. Yeah. And it's great, but there are some limitations. Uh, so I think in the time remaining, we want to talk through some of those. Yeah. R- one real quick question for the listener. Who is, who's the op for? Who are playing the red forces in these? Well, great. That's a great question. It, 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 is, it the, is it the standard fighter pilot answer? It depends. It depends. It so depends, what, I'll, yeah. what I'll tell you is that there are, um, as Boat said, we have aggressor squadrons. Mm-hmm. You know, when you note the amount of red air that we're talking about for the op four, like we don't have that many aggressors. Right. <laughs> so it's usually like the the aggressor, the professional aggressor will be like red one, like the red mission commander. Mm-hmm. And then he's augmented by operational units that go out and fly red air. Uh, so you'll, hey, we're going to go to, you're going to Nellis for, for two weeks. You're going to fly red air for two weeks for red flag. Okay. Like, ah. yeah. So we augment, um, we have to bring a lot of blue air. So operational guys who will go out and fly red air sorties to put up the iron to try to make it as real as possible. Right. There's a lot of issues with that, which kind of gets us into the limitations, but yeah. that's how we, that's how we pull it off. Yeah. Well, let's, let's jump into that. Sorry for the, the, uh, divert there. No, a no, that's bit, great. But that's a good yeah, one. let's, let's start talking about limitations. Uh, there's probably six that I can think of. Uh, the first one is scarcity. Mm-hmm. So there's, these events are really big and they're really hard to put together. And so they only happen a few times a year. 
uh, there's there's you know squadrons who are assigned to their they're called CTSs, combat training squadrons. They have a full time unit that's doing literally months of planning to make sure that we could bed down these units on the ramp, the aircraft. What's the airspace going to look like? What's the scenario? How we're going to manage it from White Force? And so it is it is a lot of work to put these things together. Um, which is why they only happen a few times a year. And because they only happen a few times a year, we have what are called uh, desired learning objectives, DLOs. Everyone who's kind of participating, like, what do you want to get out of this? Well, I want, I want to get, my unit needs to get this, or my unit gets that. What happens is when you have so many units coming together and you try to squeeze it all into one scenario, you basically end up with kind of a peanut butter spread of value mm-hmm. between the different participants. So it becomes sometimes, uh, if the scenario isn't managed correctly from uh, from White Force, to, to meet everyone's objectives and scratch everyone's itches, the scenario can morph into this amalgamation of something that's not even real. It doesn't even look real, but it can still provide a feel of realism in the air, that fog and friction, um, the radios going crazy, uh, th- you know, that kind of thing. So that that's where uh, that disconnect starts to come into play of, of how red flags starting to uh, start to morph over time. Right. Oh, by the way, uh, since we're talking about red flag, like Nellis, the Nellis range, it's used for way more things than red flag. Mm-hmm. Um, and the range scheduling on Nellis is like 130% booked. Every time I've, I've checked and talked to people who, who run that, it's it's at least 130% booked every day for the past decade. Wow. There is no open airspace times. Uh, that is, airspace is a premium. And that's, you know, it's the nature of the problem when you put too many missions in the same base, uh, or you only have a few of these tier one training ranges mm-hmm. that you can go to in the whole world that have the resources up on the range to replicate the things that you're trying to do. And so everyone's kind of fighting over the same thing. So that's kind of the scarcity problem. Mm-hmm. The next one is congestion, and that's uh, chaos. Actually, talked a little bit about that about staying in your blocks yep. and how you how we build those blocks. So, it's kind of a it's a trainingism. Again, when we have a bunch of red air out there, we have to build in safety blocks for them. Uh, there's no red blocks for for combat, right? right? You can't yeah. tell them to stay in with their blocks. You get all your blocks, and then you you know make sure they don't get close to you and you kill them, right? Uh, but the training, they're not going to actually get shot down. They they need a place to uh, to stay safe as they kill or move and, and reset. Uh, so we try to we try to. Uh, there's three basic ways we try to build that safety in. We either do it vertically, which is what Chaos talked about in those altitude blocks. We do it laterally, so we usually establish called the Bino line. Bino further east than this. Bino you know, north of that, and then we do it time. And so well, we can have a strike package like you know the first part of the strike train pushes at minute one, the next one pushes at minute three, uh, the next one pushes at minute five, and so we can do things like that. But you can only put, at the end of the day, you can only put so many formations of aircraft together before you start running out of creative ways to just include them in the scenario just to, you know, just to say that they participated. Right. And so uh, that's what, uh, and there was a period of time where red flag basically started becoming known as deconfliction flag <laughs> because we, we'd spend so much time be like, all right, here's 50 fighters on the blue side, figure it out. I'm like, I don't know what to, I don't know what to tell you. Like, there's no tankers. Like, we only have a you know 30 minute vol. Like, I can't spread this out. I don't know what to do here. Everyone's gonna die either uh, in the scenario because we've we've spread it out the strike train so long, or we're gonna die for real because we're swapping paint. Yeah. So we spend a lot of time making sure that we get the deconfliction right so it can be safe. But a lot of that time, is, there's a lot of brain bites spent on that at the expense of some time of, of being tactical. So uh, it's, you know, admin wins the day at any of these events that are that big. That's the priority. And then uh, what you get out of your tactics is, is kind of your thing. And, you know, where, whereas you might be usually, you know, 
used to fighting as a four ship and say like, I'm a four ship of F 22s and maybe I'm going to start 20,000 feet. I'm going to commit and and climb all the way up to, you know, 45,000 feet. And then as I do a tactic, I might come back down to 20,000 feet and jump back up to 40,000 feet. You can't do that at red flag. (laughs) You get a block and you stay in it uh, and that's it. And so there's a lot of uh, tactics that you would normally do that you just have to white card. Well, I couldn't do this. I couldn't do that. I just am going to drive straight yeah. <laughs> or I'm going to turn around. Like I can't, there's some, there's a, there's a vertical component of tactics that you just cannot do based on uh, just having too many aircraft and having that safety factor. Right. So congestion is a real thing. That's just the nature of the business for uh, for live fly. Yeah. So a, a conflux of safety constraints along with you only get to do this so often you, you want to bring everyone you can, but that means you brought everyone you could. There's only so much air, like you said. So that's a prime constraint. But yeah, let's go on. What other constraints? Uh, number three, this is a big one, geography. Okay. So uh, the Nellis range, it's called the NTTR, the Nellis Test and Training Range. It's pretty big, but uh, as Chaos kind of said uh, in his episode, it's about 50 It's about fifty by 100 nautical miles of airspace that's usable most of the time. Uh, and the reason why it's only 50 by 100, there's this big red square that someone put directly in the middle of this massive uh-huh. airspace. And it's called the R4808 Alpha. We, uh, as fighter pilots, just call it the container. Uh, most <laughs> enthusiasts will probably recognize it as, uh, as Groom Lake or Area 51. Mm-hmm. It is literally smack dab in the middle <laughs> of the Nellis range where we'd normally uh, fly through. So for generations, we have been constrained of where we can and can't fly because there's this big red square. I will say in the past year or so, uh, the, the Air Force has adopted uh, some special procedures that actually make the container go away and they open up the entire airspace. Mm-hmm. So you can uh, you can actually fly what you would see on the map minus the you know the square. So you can get maybe an 80 mile wide um, with 100, 110 mile uh, long airspace. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the end of the day, the, the NTTR, just like most military airspaces, they're bounded by air corridors now. And so Nellis to the north, the east, and to the west have these massive, busy airline corridors. And you can't mess with that because that costs the airlines a ton of money right. when they have to go around that. Uh, and then we have Vegas to the south. So it's very congested. There's an airport there, so we can't fly there. There are ways that we can momentarily shut down some of those corridors uh, in non-peak hours and that only happens, no kidding, like maybe five days a year. Uh, so you can actually connect the Nellis range to the Edwards airspace, which I'm forgetting what it's called right now, to the west. Or you can connect the Nellis range to the Uter airspace up to the north, uh, the northeast. But they only do that for very specific reasons. It's not re- repeatable. It's only about five days a year, right. maybe, right? Yeah. Um, but all military airspace faces all of these challenges. They can't get any bigger. So if you look at the Nellis range, um, which isn't the biggest, but it's pretty big. And so let's assume that we have a 80 by 100 mile airspace. That seems like a lot. But now in context, let's talk about some threats. Yep. So a Russian S-400, which is an SA-21, it has been operational since 2015. It can cover every square inch of that airspace. One. Right. 
One, like, one launcher, one missile. Right. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or a Chinese CSA uh, 9 Bravo. It's been operational since 2006. It can cover the entire airspace. <laughs> and these are not new systems. And there's newer ones even coming out that are more and more capable. And that's just a system. When you look at layered air defenses, and you're, you have no airspace to actually fight in. Mm-hmm. If you really want to be real, you, you just it's just not going to happen. When you look at air-to-air missiles, you know there's there's a whole bunch of advancements in air-to-air missiles that have happened in the past, call it ten years. The Cha Ten, which is the the Chinese PL-15, um, that's been out since about 2017, and it's it's getting better and better. Um, that missile's got 120 mile range, according to Wikipedia, um, and they're they're building ones that go way further than that. Yep. So there, and again, when you look at how big the range is, like is at the fights on, you are being shot. <laughs> right. Yeah. The minute both aircraft enter the range, weapons engagement zone. That's and, right. Yeah. So there's, and we've talked earlier about how air combat is a game of chess. Well, if you start in checkmate, or you know whoever get whoever gets their finger to the piece first is going to put the other guy in checkmate. That's that's not much of a game. Yeah, you're starting uh, opposite like the redcoats. You're just in a line shooting each other. Yeah, like, that's. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to fight that way. I want to. Yeah, fight, I want to fight unfair and use every advantage that's I can right. think of. That's right. We're not looking to refight Gettysburg in the air at this point. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So that's a that's a big problem, obviously. Uh, so even if you could get over all of that, the next problem you have is the the fourth problem was your threat quality and density, mm-hmm. like your air threats and and uh, boat talked about it a little bit, like your. F-16s, it even some, and you can upgrade them with some really good tech, but it's just, you know, it's just not the same as it used to be with the aggressors. So mm-hmm. it's less about like turn rate, radius, thrust to weight ratio, or like what the paint scheme is. Like those things don't matter anymore. And that's not the point of red flag. And if you, if you, in any of these things, if you get within visual range of someone, number one, you're not going to turn and engage with them uh, because you'll be out of your outseed block, as uh, <laughs> Chaos talked about. But like the whole point is to not get to there. It's like, hey, all right, dude, I'm, I am not going to like local terminate. We'll flow beyond visual range and uh, we'll continue the scenario. So now it goes, okay, well, if its focus is on beyond visual range, what matters? It's like, well, the sensors, the signature, how, multi-ship tactics, data links, spectrum management, how you exploit different spectrums and signatures and how you can dominate them and how you can control them. Like those are the things that matter. And, you know, honestly, like when you put up even uh, not just the aggressors, but if you put up a, a blue, you know, F-35, you can put them on red. Well, now I have like, I have, I have F-35s in front of me. Now, which one's good and which one's bad? All my jet tells me I see an F-35. Right. Like, I don't know. And now I have to use like my next level of deduction. And we use some like um, transponder differences and things like that to try to, you know, deconflict them. But it's just not the same when, the when same. You're, yeah. I see, I see a wall of F-16s. Like, I don't know which ones they are, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hopefully, like if they're in front of me, they're bad. If the the good guys are behind me, right? But right. sometimes, hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> but sometimes, like uh, a great example is like you'll have um, like F twenty twos usually do uh, sweep missions, so they're well in front of everyone, and they go really high and really fast. Well, if you have red F twenty twos, they're doing the exact same thing, and at some point, you know that blue F twenty two that's way in front of me is going to turn around and kind of go cold right. to the fight, which it looks hot to me. So it's is he a good F twenty two or a bad F twenty two? Right. Like I don't know. Well, and so there. So that happens a lot. There's uh, there's some interesting uh, fifth on fifth, fourth on fifth, uh, fifth on fourth. Uh, fifth on fourth isn't very common, but a lot of uh, trading shots between friendlies, but just from that ambiguity. Yeah. Of like I don't know what it is, and that I mean that's that's a thing as we become more and more dependent on 
um, sensors and signatures and, and how we can determine what's what beyond visual range, uh, beyond, you know, C2 just telling us like, that's the guy I've been watching him for the past 10 minutes. Well, you know, if C2 doesn't, doesn't give you an update or one guy's not tracking it, uh, it's a thing. Right. Uh, so that's the air threat. You know, mm-hmm. we don't have a bunch of uh, Chinese and Russian fighters out there to, you know, build a aggressor squadron out of. Right. Uh, the next one is the, the air, uh, the surface, the threat. Uh, so, we the the emulators that we you know would buy to to replicate call it a you know an SA six or SA eleven or something like that, the emulators are no longer good enough because our our sensor suites on our aircraft can tell like that's not real and I'm not going to show it to you like oh. yeah so we can't so the emulators aren't good enough we can't actually the real thing isn't scalable we can't go and and raid another military's like you know equipment locker and then put them all out on our range uh, that's that's not feasible it's right. not scalable. And then if you want to build something that replicates the real threat, it actually costs more than the real threat. Right. It's, <laughs> right. It does. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. It's like if you want uh, to, to be the same RF signature, heat signature, metallic signature, IR signature, it's literally the thing. It's going to cost way more than just if you would have got the real then thing. If you just got the real <laughs> That's thing. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, for the listener really quick, we, we've talked earlier about how the technology is making it easier to fly the plane and easier to process the information so that you can have all of your mental bandwidth, if you will, able to address the tactical problem. Well, this this is the flip side of that now is what Paco was just talking about is the systems are so good, it's not even going to tell you that one of our own is trying to replicate something else. It's, it's not back to the days of reading an O-scope or sort of picking out the data, it's completely transparent to you, the operator, right? Paco, that just the your your raw gear or whatever sensor you're using is just going to say, ah, that's not a threat. I'm not going to waste your time with it. Yeah. And if it depends on the fusion of what kind of aircraft, like an F-35, because it fuses stuff behind the glass mm-hmm. and then it displays, here's what it is. If it doesn't have all of those different things it's looking for, it's going to go, that's not real. Right. If you have uh, something like, a, like an F-15EX, you know, it, it, it doesn't fuse things behind the glass. It shows you all the raw data and you just have to kind of know like, all right, I know I'm looking for this. It's, it's going to be missing like these two things. And so if I have like, you know, two out of four of the things that I'm going to call it the real thing today, again, it's, it's more, uh, cognitively intensive, uh, to fight through that, but that's just the nature of having, you know, a two person jet, um, in that example. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it depends on where the data is fused, but it is a huge problem. And then you start developing these workarounds, and workarounds are great, but when you start working around and, uh, long enough, it starts just becoming the way. Right. And now you've developed a bigger problem, which is now we've developed these negative habit patterns out of this training, which mm-hmm. now when I see the real thing, I actually don't know what to do because I wasn't expecting it to look like that. Right. Yeah, because you, you fight like you train. You know, they say, hey, you should train like you fight. The corollary is you are going to fight the way you train. And, you know, for people who haven't, used systems like this, I'll give a, I'll give a, uh, you know, land combat example. You take guys to the range and range safety says, okay, you're going to, the, the buzzer goes, you draw from your holster. If you're using a pistol, you engage your target. Well, then you take your pistol back to your holster. And there's actually documented instances of guys in their first engagements in the real world. Hey, I took care of that threat and I reholstered my pistol. That is not what you want to do in the real world. And it's, it's that on a larger, more technical scale is what you're talking about. 
Yeah. And people would say that you, you know, rise, rise to the expectation. I'd say you fall to your level of preparation. Yep. So if you do not have the right muscle memory, you are, you are setting yourself up for a really difficult day. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So that, that was five or that was six. I've actually lost. That's, that's like, that's four. That's uh that was four. That's sorry. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And we'll skip, we'll skip triple A. We, we know like we can't replicate that. And that's obviously right. a huge blind spot. Uh, CDO is, is number five and that's uh, contested degraded ops. So mm-hmm. this one's really hard to train to. Uh, so we're talking about here is jamming. So we're jamming nav signals, we're jamming comms links, we're jamming data links, all those jamming radars. It's trying to break apart that situational awareness of how I'm, I'm either receiving information, processing information, or transmitting information to someone else. And so GPS is like the best example because it's just comical. It takes upwards of six months of paperwork in coordination with the FAA just to get approval to turn on a GPS jammer in the continental United States to like train with. Even on the range. Even, even on, on the range. range. Even okay. on a military yeah. range. We cannot turn them on. Like we have to go get FAA approval. Uh, and here's why. It's a really interesting dynamic. As it turns out, military equipment have GPS antennas and receivers that are built to be more resilient than commercial ones. And that means that it takes more power to actually get that effect that you're looking for. Because in real life, the bad guy GPS jammers are, are really powerful. So we, we replicate that with a little bit lower um, intensity one, but enough where it actually trips our systems and it makes us go through some of these uh, GPS agnostic procedures and tactics. But as a byproduct of that, we have to turn it up just enough so we can get that impact. That more that power means it travels pretty far. And when that happens, what usually happens, Barry, I said, what's around every military airspace today? <laughs> Air corridors. Right. So no kidding. What usually happens is we get it. We get all this process. We get approval. We turn on a GPS jammer for the scenario. And within 10 minutes, an airliner reports GPS interference, calls the FAA. The FAA calls uh, the squadron who's like running the exercise and shuts the GPS jammer down for the rest oh. of the exercise. So yeah. six months of process for 10 minutes of use. That's right. That has happened so many times. It's becoming a running joke. Uh <sighs> And, and there's and there's a reason like there's there's ways to do it within your aircraft, but at the end of the day, having a real world interference across multiple aircraft that is you know geofenced or it's stake it's a stake in the ground where I could manage geography, geometry, range, um, elevation, masking like those are tactics and that you have to train to. And so the only way you really do that is you got to put something out in the range, turn it on. Right. And so so that's uh, that's GPS. There's obviously other ones, uh, but yes, at the time that's 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 CDO in a nutshell. It's really hard to train to. Okay. And it takes it takes a lot of work. And the last one, even if you could do everything one through five just right and you could make wave a magic wand make the airspace bigger uh turn on your gps jammers have the best aggressors and solve every single issue that we just talked about you still can't solve the last one and that's disclosure there you go so people are always watching they're always listening whether it's from the ground if you're out in the desert if you're at a fishing trawler under a you know yep. overwater uh, airspace or even from space mm-hmm. There are signals, formations, geometry, like things that when we do it, people see it. And now they're watching us just like we're watching them. You know, know thy enemy, know thyself. Mm-hmm. And so obviously a big part of effective warfare is preserving the element of surprise. And so there are things that we don't want to do 
because we don't want to give it away, which also means that we can't train to it. <laughs> so, right. So, and the, the byproduct of that, we, uh, so some of the modes, uh, we have special capabilities we call WRM, uh, all mm -hmm. tactical aircraft have them or reserve modes. And so we don't want to turn those on, which means it's really hard to train to them. Oh, by the way, where do you think the testing's happening? Like you, it's really, really hard to test them if you can't turn them on either. Right. We have these, these limited windows that we can test. And so some of these exquisite war only capabilities actually don't get tested with the rigor that your other systems generally get tested to because there's just no way to do it. Right. And so we're like, well, I guess we're going to trust the glossy brochure. Yes. <laughs> so, so quick divert to a sea story on how that can, can go badly. Uh, shortly after 9-11, my ship was supporting an operation somewhere in the world and it involved uh, joint forces and it involved a pavlo doing doing something with uh, another ship, not my ship, uh, not a friendly ship. And it was not the best time in the world to find out that Aegis radar emissions actually very badly interfere with a lot of the flight control avionics of a pavlo. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but that's the sort of thing you risk you, when you have these modes that for a lot of good reasons aren't being tested and you find out sort of at the worst possible time. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so that's kind of a, the summary of it's great, like getting, you know, getting your weight off wheels and, and getting in the air and getting into that, those environments. It's, it is definitely a critical part of, of training uh, to train like you fight, but it is not everything anymore. There, there has to be another component to it besides the live fly. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you've, Describe that fairly eloquently and in detail that that's where we find ourselves. And I guess the question I'm left with, well, a question I'm left with, uh, hearing the pivot that the Air Force made with red flag and what it's going to try and focus on. Uh, I don't want to leave the listener with the idea that we're sort of abandoning that visual range or the, you know, the BFM ACM, but we've cracked that code, right? Like we know how to do that in terms of train to it. So this is why the, the edge of the envelope is out on the new tech, right? We've not forgotten that. We're not setting aside. It's, that's just not our, our bleeding edge right now. Yeah, it is a, you know, for the listeners who are unaware, it is a foundational building block today for every single upgrade that a fighter pilot goes through. So when he learns how to fly the aircraft after advanced handling, which is just one jet flying around max performing the envelope, the next ride is, is BFM. Uh, when you're a two-ship flight lead, your first ride is leading a two-ship of BFM. Your first instructor upgrade is teaching BFM. And so it, it, when you go to weapon school, one of your first rides that KS was talking about it is BFM. It, it's a foundational instructional ride about max performing an aircraft and making timely decisions and then coming back. And the best part about BFM, especially when it's uh, when it's like V-like aircraft is you start with a known energy state and angular relationship and range relationship. And then what you're trying to do at the end is go, how did I solve my range closure aspect or angle problem using the mechanics of max performing my aircraft while the other person is trying to magnify those problems that were started with by max performing his aircraft. And that is really like the crux of BFM. 
it's not just to, you know, I'm going to kill you. Like, well, you started behind me. I hope you eventually you kill me, but yeah. <laughs> maybe not. Uh, the whole point is, is you start with these angular relationships. And at the end, you're like, how did I, how did I end? And you're assessing those kinds of things. So it, it is a standard and it's a great teaching tool because it's, it's, you know, if this, then that, uh, and then generally you can just kind of rewind the tape, uh, usually 90 degrees backwards. Uh, so 90 degrees before this is probably where the mistake happened. And mm-hmm. it, it provides a very good foundational way to instruct and to build those fundamentals. And so I don't think that's going to go away. I never, never, uh, Never thought it would go away, um, but it, it's there. And you build in complexity. If you can max perform your jet within visual range, well, then you can max perform your aircraft on a on a on a recommit, or or an out or a commit. You know, going trying to intercept this. Uh, you know, maybe a Chinese fighter. You know, 100 miles away. So you you understand what your jet can and can't do, and you uh, depending on what kind of aircraft you fly. You sometimes the jet talks back to you, like a, like an F-16 rides a little rough because it's uh, aerodynamically unstable. If you fly an F-15, you know, it's pretty smooth because it's a big aircraft. It was designed with cables, pulleys, and hydraulic servos mm-hmm. a long time ago. But, you know, when you pull on the stick, it, it talks to you, gives you a lot of buffet and uh, based on the angle of attack. So you learn these ways of how to, like, f- fly the jet by feel and understand what it's, what it's doing. And so I think that's a critical part. It's not going to go away. Right. But when you look at the context of, like, fighting and, and you know, winning or losing a war, you know, you're, you know how you fight BFM is probably not going to be the deciding factor. Right. But it's a but it's a building block that the other things that you will learn the the fundamental processes you go through apply. Yeah, well, I guess it's sort of bookending the conversation. You know, we started out with gesture talking about the kill ratio, and and I'm probably going to misquote this, uh, but he also mentioned that it's because guys back then had forgotten the fundamentals, and that's basically what we're saying is that BFM is the fundamental, and that's why it's not a focus of red flag right now because. You better know how to do that just to be a fighter pilot, not to up your game, not to get to that point. That's the cost of entry almost. And that's why we're looking at integration. We, we just expect a fighter pilot to be proficient at fighting his plane. It's teaching him how to fight is the larger part of a system. Yeah. The other part is I can go out any day of the week at my home base with two aircraft and do BFM. Right. I cannot go out any day of the week with a hundred aircraft and do a red flag. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we've cracked the code on how to do that. We know how to do it. All right. Well, I really appreciate the time, Paco. Anything we've missed? I know there's a whole bunch out there and, and uh, I think we'll probably be talking more on future projects, but Anything we've missed on Red Flag? No, I think that uh, I think that sums it up. All right. Uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Scott. Absolutely. Any uh, closing parting shots? One, if I could give a plug. So mm-hmm. the Merge, a defense newsletter that helps you make sense of defense. Uh, I, I run that, but do it for about two years. Please check it out. It's uh, www.themerge.co, T-H-E-M-E-R-G.co. I'd appreciate it. Thanks. Absolutely. And a completely uh, unpaid, unsolicited plug for that from me. Uh, I get it. I read it. If you don't have a lot of time to keep up on what's going on, it is a great way to do that. And I also have to say, I love the fact that there are some places that do this. There are a lot that don't. So I appreciate that. For example, when you're we were talking about uh, China and how we got where we are. You said, hey, if you missed part one and two, here are the easy links. You know, that that goes a long way. So unsolicited plug for the merge. Thanks, Scott. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you again, Paco. And we'll be talking soon. All right. See ya. I have to say, I really enjoyed this interview with Paco. 
It was a terrific history of how the Air Force reacted to unfavorable combat outcomes and not just improved, but redefined the paradigm of what it is to train formations for aerial combat. We've got two more great interviews about large force training with former Top Gun skipper Steve Sonic Hemanowski talking about the philosophy behind Air Wing Fallon and preparing carrier air wings for deployment, as well as returning guest Brian Casmo Harris discussing the Army's JRTC. That'll be next time in part two of episode seven, putting it all together. Until then, keep your head on a swivel and get in the fight. Fights On has been made possible by a contribution from Cubic Corporation. Truth and Training, Cubic LVC. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow.